Well, good morning. Good to see you guys this morning. Hey, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you are new to the church in the last couple of months, we have been studying, we started back in the spring to study the book of 1 Corinthians, the entire book. So you will get a degree in 1 Corinthians at the close of this time. So thanks for joining us. All right, if you got a, a Bible and you're turning there, this is a really important little section of Scripture. I guess I could say that about all sections of Scripture. But this one gets featured by the Apostle Paul in a way that's just extremely important to us. But I want to I lay a little second of groundwork here for the title. The title of the message today is Giving Up and the Word of the Cross. It's probably not a common feature today to come to church to hear something that sounds like lessons in giving up. That's not a real popular attitude today. What's popular today, what's published today, what's featured today uh, is a lot more about your, your potential as a human being, what, what you are capable of. It's not a lot said about your limitations. It's all about all that you can accomplish. It's about going for it rather than giving up on something. And, and this is prevalent all throughout our culture and we bump into it in ways that we're probably ignoring it. We probably feature and highlight it if you're one of those people who reposts things or repeats things that's online. This is the kind of attitude that's online. So if you're a repeater of things you're seeing, you probably are repeating some of this stuff to others. That makes others to feel like, hey, no, the sky is the limit. You can dream big, right? And they're doing commercials about dreaming big. You've seen this commercial? Believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything. Now, if you've seen the commercial, it feels a bit inspiring. There's a lot of stories that are in the commercial about people who are, have been just in a difficult place in life and, and they've overcome that and they're in a greater place and you know on a on a human level I, I, I appreciate people experience something better than the difficulties that they live their life in but there, there's a an undercurrent in this ad right uh, starts off saying if people say your dreams are crazy if they laugh at what you think you can do good And it ends by saying, don't ask if your dreams are crazy. Ask if they're crazy enough. And the attitude that's in this commercial is, don't tell me what I can't do. No matter what my limitations are, no matter what factors in my life are limiting, don't don't anybody tell me what I can't do because that's exactly what I'll turn around and do up in your face. That's the attitude of the commercial. Let me highlight, let me sideswipe a few of us here. You guys remember we started this year, seems like a long time ago, but we started this year, I think it was this year, with a series on enchantment. 
on how easy it is to become enchanted by the things that are in this world and they mysteriously kind of seep into our DNA and our bloodstream. Um, how many of you guys have gotten upset about this commercial? It's a, it's a, it's a controversial commercial. Hello, right? Did, did you get upset because the guy who's the spokesman for it kneels when the national anthem is being played? And that's what, oh man, son of a... Mm. How, many, how many got upset because this is a commercial that takes its fist out and says, do not tell me what I can't do. You understand... When you open up 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you're, you're going to get introduced to this word of the cross. What we might equate to words like the gospel. God's redemptive plan. The plan of salvation. Right? What's highlighted in chapter 1 is the centerpiece of everything that this book is about. And one of the things it's going to do is it's going to put its foot down extremely in convincing you that human beings are not self-sufficient. Your existence is framed around what you can't do for yourself. And here's a commercial that says, don't tell me what I can't do. And if I took a poll before I polluted you with this image just now, and I said, how do you feel about this commercial? I, I would bet my house that where you would go with it today would be about the guy who kneels during the national anthem. Right? We might need to spend a little bit more time reading 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 than we do watching the news. Because the news discipled us into thinking the greatest sin somebody could commit is either kneeling during the national anthem or not standing up for those who are being harmed by society and culture. That's the big debate. This is a commercial about don't tell me what I can't do. Just do it, human being. All right, now this is where I want to start this message. Before I read the passage, look at this quote from Gordon Fee in his commentary on Corinthians. He says, this paragraph, what we're about to read, this paragraph is crucial, not only to the present argument here in Corinthians, but to the entire letter as well. Indeed, it is one of the truly great moments in the Apostle Paul. And he's had a few great moments. Here... He argues that what God had always intended and had foretold in the prophets, he has now accomplished through the crucifixion. Listen, he has brought an end to human self-sufficiency as it is evidenced through human wisdom and devices. Really? That's... What the cross is about? Bringing an end to human self-sufficiency? Remember, 
In the beginning, when God created, there was a choice. God dependency or self-sufficiency. That tree offered man self-sufficiency. We don't need God. We just need a tree. We don't need God to guide us, lead us, explain to us creation, our purpose. Who are we? Who is he? What is everything? We don't need God for that. We just need a tree. And we can be like God. Self-sufficiency was at the heart of everything that made the human world crumble. So in a way, as you read this passage with me, God goes to war. But that's not new on human self-sufficiency. Let's read here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where is the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews. Folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what's low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why did God do all this? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. This is human potential and abilities. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech, my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Lord, these are rich words, rich words. Lord, let us not leave this feast on the table. There are insights here that unwrap life for us. That help us find what our life was really supposed to be about and how it is that we ever come to relate to you in the first place. So Lord, give us eyes to see. Lord, for we cannot see without you. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, this word of the cross that Paul unpacks here, he presents it in a a rather interesting way. And if there ever was another setting where we might think that there was a culture that was celebrating human potential, the ability of what man can do for himself, if you just get out of my way, watch me, it was the Roman Empire. Right, the Roman Empire was very much kind of like, I mean, you have, if you study history, you've got, you've got these empires that are trendsetters. They shape the way the whole world feels. Roman Empire, the, uh, I have to admit it, the British uh, colonization of the world shaped the world. That little bitty island shaped the entire world. America is a dominant world force. We shape and influence the world. So if you were a Roman, you were in a setting that, that, flaunted human capacity, what humans are capable of. These Romans who are conquering civilizations, paving roads, creating technology that nobody else had. Then tucked away inside the Roman Empire was the Greeks, who were just just smart individuals. These guys figured out a lot of stuff, invented all kinds of systems. They had a high, lofty opinion about themselves. And then tucked in them were the Jews who had a high moral opinion of themselves. And so you had a gathering of people who had a high opinion of themselves. Human beings felt good about themselves right here. And then Paul's going to introduce something to them that's going to sound strange. And he prepares for that. He he says, right, this is going to sound foreign, baffling unexpected, strange to your ears. It's going to sound ridiculous, quite honestly. You're going to make fun of it. This is going to sound like, what on earth is this? Have you heard this? This is laughable. This is going to sound ridiculous. And what was he talking about? This word of the cross. This thing we call the gospel. But you know what, let's be honest. If you bust out a topic or a conversation about the gospel with people, just general people, about Christianity, about the crucifixion, you you got most people who feel like, yeah, it's a big deal, I got that. I get it. I could could tell, I could explain the basics of the Christian life. Yeah, I get that. And, And yet, when we poke around in this today, you're going to find that sometimes we don't really get what we claim that we get. And unfortunately, we are very easily distracted into all kinds of other things. If we were to give out a quiz today, I'm pretty sure most of the room could pass a quiz on what's the difference between illegal procedure and pass interference. And I'm pretty sure, I mean, that'd be a bunch of little ideas and concepts like that. Um, you know, was Darth Vader a good guy or a bad guy? I mean, this, we know this stuff, right? We got this stuff down. But yet a world that celebrates human potential and a passage that doesn't. Oops, I didn't notice that when I posted that. And celebrated, along with the Nike people, human potential at its best. Dream your dream. Dream it big and dream it even bigger. And don't let anybody tell you you can't have I mean, this is everywhere. Does anybody accept an award today without sounding that way? Everybody's got a chip on their shoulder. 
guys win the Super Bowl and they start their explanation of it with, you know, people told us we couldn't. Yeah, they said there's no way, man, you can't. I mean, it's like everybody's mad. What are you mad about? Somebody told me I couldn't. You're going to love 1 Corinthians chapter 1. <laughs> See, you understand why this is upside down. This, is, this sounds ridiculous. All right, but if you're, gonna, if you're going to understand, and I, I'm just going to pick up some of the highlights from here, so I'm not going to venture off into every explanation in Scripture about this. But if, if you're going to explain the gospel to people and really do a service to it, there are at least three, at least three things that you have got to create clarity on. One of them is the cross. There was an event that took place that involved a cross that crucified a human being. But not just any human being, right? To understand the event of the cross and its significance, it's not that it just killed a human being because there were thousands, millions perhaps, people that were killed by crosses in the Roman era. But it was who was this one particular person named Jesus Christ who died on that cross? And what was the significance of him dying? What did it mean? What was being accomplished by his death? If you want to explain the gospel, you have to explain that event. And who was involved and what was he doing? If your explanation has become informed by a world that doesn't read a Bible, you will give an explanation like, well, Jesus Christ was providing the ultimate example for human beings. Can I just pop that balloon real quick? Jesus Christ was not providing the ultimate example for human beings. Jesus Christ was doing for human beings what they could not do for themselves. To walk away from the Bible with this idea that, you know, Jesus is such an inspirational figure. I just, I just want to be like him. Okay, but that's, that's still a Nike commercial. Okay, if, if you want to have anything to do with at all being like Christ, you're going to have to begin with you can't be like him. Try all you want. Dream as big as you can dream. Be crazy, crazy dreaming. And you can't be like Jesus. I'm I'm sorry. It's not going to work out that way. So to understand what this cross is, you have to understand who it is and what's happening right there and and what it's doing for you and me. But you also have to understand a couple other things. To grasp the gospel, you have to understand something about God. Who is this God and what is he like? What is the nature and character of God So that what's happening in the gospel even makes sense because he's the one who creates it and it's satisfying something about him. And then you're also going to have to understand at least one more thing. Something about us as human beings. What are we like? What really is our potential? Can we dream our way and just work hard our way into salvation? Can we rescue ourselves from the mess we're in? If you just try harder... Don't tell, don't tell me what I can't do. I can re- really, can I really rescue me? What do I need as a creature? What's the need that I have as a human being? If you can't explain those three things to people, you can't explain the gospel. You can repeat stuff, you can say things, but you're not really explaining the gospel. 
And so when we come to this passage, let's, let's poke around in it. Let's, let's, let's let it inform us about a few things that are going to help us clarify what exactly is going on here. All right, so let me move us through some thoughts here. Again, not exhaustive. Paul's not trying to teach everything that pertains to understanding even the word of the cross. But he's going to feature a few things and we'll scoop them up along the way. Look in verse 18 and actually start back in verse 17. Here, here's an introduction to this cross that features some kind of unique Power is in this cross. Verse 17 says, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, which has a lot of context in the culture there. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. It's got some kind of power in it. Verse 18 says that again. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So Paul says there's something about the word of the cross that it has power in it. And he said that elsewhere in Romans chapter 1. Paul said in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. So, so there's something in the gospel, in the word of the cross, inherently something in it that's powerful. There's a power in it. And think for a moment, what is power? What exactly is power? What is this word pointing to? Well, power is it's enablement. It's, it's ability. It's capacity. So without this power... We lack enablement. We lack ability. We lack a capacity for something. So the gospel, the word of the cross, comes to us with power to enable something that apart from it, we don't have capacity to do. We just don't have it. So what do we do with this word of power? I'm reading here. I'm, I'm curious. What kind of power is this? Can I, can I get at this power some other way? Suppose I don't really like this version of where do I get power. Suppose I'm like one of these people here who's like, you know, hey, that sounds ridiculous. Are you kidding me? I'm not even going to talk about this this week. We'll get to it maybe another time. But the ridiculousness of some Jew dying on a Roman instrument of, of capital punishment being the centerpiece of fixing everything broken in the universe just is ridiculous right here. So even if I think I need some kind of power that this thing's talking is there another way for me to get it? Because I don't want to go that way. That just sounds stupid. Well, that's a good question. One, do you need any kind of power in your life that this is talking about? And two, is there another way to get it? Is there another way for you and I to get the power that this verse is describing so that you and I would begin to have an ability or a capacity for something that a few minutes ago we didn't have according to the Bible? Or is the Bible holding out that there is something unique in the cross of Jesus Christ that offers power to humanity that you can't get anywhere else? 
And I would make the case that the Bible, the whole Bible is pointing to that reality. That there is a power that you and I need. A power that was forfeited in our allegiance with Adam to that tree of self-sufficiency and our own abilities. That we forfeited a power that only the cross can give to us. And you and I can try anything under the sun. There is no substitute for that power. Verse 18. It's going to introduce us to a, a bit of a startling reality. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. All right, so if I, I just, reading this passage, this is going to introduce me to something about humanity that's true in every gathering of humanity. Humanity can be divided into two categories. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Now, if that's true, and I believe the Bible's telling us the truth, but if that's true, then this Power, this word of the cross immediately becomes very, very relevant to our lives, doesn't it? Because our association, our belief, our receiving of this word of the cross is what determines what category we are in. There is a, this is sobering. There is a category of those who are perishing. And there's a category of those who are being saved. And there's no other categories. Humanity exists in one or the other. That's true in this room. Everybody here is in one or the other of those categories. Everybody in your life that you've ever known is either perishing or saved. There are no other categories. Everybody driving on that highway while this service goes on. Every person in every car is either perishing or is saved. And and the only hope of that ever being affected is bound to this word of the cross. And this is informing. I just want to throw that, this out at you that this is a correct worldview. I don't know how you and I look at the world. I don't, how, many, how many categories can, can you personally put people in? Maybe you got three or four. I don't know what they would be. But maybe you just look at people a little bit differently. But the Bible would expose you to the idea that when you look another person in the eyes for the rest of your life, you are either looking at a person who is perishing or a person who is saved. That is the only two conditions that you are staring into of a human being. That's sobering, isn't it? And if you make it personal, it's even more sobering because it would be appropriate for you to ponder and for me to ponder what category am I in as I sit here this morning? Am I here this morning perishing? Facing an existence labeled perishing. Or 
am I saved? And this obviously has everything to do with our relationship with God. That's what the cross is about. The cross is not a self-help message. The cross is not a how to get a raise at work message. The cross is about a relationship with God message. It's about being right with God. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. So this is sobering. You and I read the Bible and it immediately puts everybody into two categories. And you can find that all over scripture. Here it's called perishing and saved. Elsewhere it's called in Adam and in Christ. But the in Adam folks are perishing. And the in Christ folks are being saved. So these are important categories for us to catch. So we get introduced to this word of the cross to the whole concept of the human race and the relevance of this passage to the entire human race. Then we get introduced to God in verse 18 and then quickly into verse 19. And this is a bit of a strange introduction, I have to be honest. He's going to bring up God by saying that this word of the cross is the power of God. All right, so it's the power of God. So it's not just power. It's not just the force. Like there's something out there. There's some power source you and I can tap into. This is the power of God. And the God in the Bible is the personal being Yahweh of the Old Testament who created everything. Who is described with features and personality He thinks a certain way. He is a certain way. He exists a certain way. He feels a certain way. His his existence amongst his creation is a certain way. He created things for certain reasons. He thought them through and brought them into existence for a purpose. Everything has a purpose. Because there is a personal God who thought this stuff up. And this power is associated with this personal God. So immediately, Paul, when he brings up God, he starts to say a little bit about God. And this is the first thing he's going to bring up. Now, this is an interesting clarifier here because it's going to get a little bit confusing right from the get-go. And, and remember, do remember this as you're reading this. This is Paul writing to believers in Corinth. Okay, this is, this is not Paul standing in a town square just yelling some stuff out. But I'm sure this would inform a bit of what he might yell. But he's, he's speaking to people who needed some clarity on, on, okay, this is the power of God. Well, God, yeah. Yeah, what's this, what's this God like? Well, in this moment, this is what he chooses to feature about God. Verse 19. For it is written, I, and he's going to reveal something that God has said. Just re- introduce God to us. Here's something God says. God said, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Really? That's how you want to introduce God? Isn't everybody obligated to say, God is a God of love when they introduce God? Isn't that where we're supposed to start? Paul, what's your problem, man? Uh, how about God is, a, God is a destroyer and a thwarter? <laughs> how do you like that, right? Can I introduce you to God? God is a destroyer of stuff and a thwarter. He just runs around frustrating things. That is what he said though, right? Right? And, and he's going to tweak that out a little bit. He comes down a little further. Look in verse 21. After he kind of baits these wise people, he says, hey, you know, I don't know if you knew this, but in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. 
in the wisdom of God, in other words, the way God designed things, man in his human potential could not discover God. And God created that. You know, the destroyer, thwarter God, he did that. D.A. Carson says this, he says, in the first place, Paul says the utter bankruptcy of all the world's efforts to know God was part of God's wise design. (laughs) It was in the wisdom of God that the world through its wisdom did not know him. Not only did the wise and the scholars and the philosophers fail to understand God, in all his wise providence, actually, he worked it out that way. It is God who ensures that the world in its wisdom does not know him. What? This is harder to understand than the, you know, the targeting rule in the NFL now. Y'all know what targeting is? Targeting. Wait, I thought that was just a clean hit. Right, this is, this is, this is harder to understand than that. Doesn't it just make sense to us that the God who created us to know him would give to us the capacity and the ability to pull that off? Doesn't that just make sense? It makes a lot of sense when you have a high opinion of yourself. How many of y'all would think God would be doing you a favor if, if God said, listen, I know some of you guys have studied for the ACT test, but um, I'm going to give you the ability to study all this information about calculus and physics, and then you're going to take a test to see if you can get into heaven. How many of you guys would say, oh, God is so loving and merciful. No, most of us would say, well, that's it. I'm going to hell. That's it. <laughs> I'm, I'm, done. I'm done. That is not a good idea. All right. Now you're flirting with the reality of what's being discussed right here. Do you really want God to entrust this to you? To your ability? To make sure you're going to get there and figure out who he is? Is that really how you want this to play out? See, this is hard to grasp, especially in, in, in a man-centered universe. See, in a man-centered universe, God doesn't do this kind of stuff. In a man-centered universe, God, God is this unending benevolent, come alongside of us, say good things to us, applaud us, appreciate us, further our dreams and goals kind of a being. That, that's who he is. He exists to make us feel warm and fuzzy and comfortable and destined for greatness. That's why, that's why God's there. And, and we can't fathom God not being in that mode. That doesn't make any sense to us. And you know how you know this is true about yourself? Right, you're off busy. You're doing life. Life's happening, right? You're chugging along, getting some A's. Relationships are great. Everything's good. You feel good. Life looks good. Potential is there. Moving forward. And then suddenly there's this veering thing that happens. And dreams are over there and not over here. This is hard. That's where, what, what the, what's happening? Why am I going this way? And it's, in, it's only in those moments that we begin to hoist the why question to God. Why? 
Why? Why? Why you come in for counseling? This is what you look like. Why? Why would God let this happen? Okay, this is what you're not saying. Because you notice you weren't asking that question over here. I've never had, I don't know, have you ever had an, I've never had a counseling appointment where somebody comes in and they just, they won the lottery, they're married, they're just, everything is great. Just one great thing after another and they come make an appointment and they go, why? <laughs> Nobody's asking why when it's going your way, right? It makes sense that it would go your way. The universe was made for me. It makes sense that it's working out this way. I only ask why when it feels derailed from me being the center of it all. And that's our existence. We are these man-centered, self-sufficient creatures. That makes sense to us. This thought from D.A. Carson, he says, "It's, it's not hard to see why in this fallen order... Human wisdom is deeply idolatrous, right? It's about me. Humans invent things, systems, behavioral things, how to do religion, and it's about me. And Carson asks, how can idolatrous attempts to, quote, domesticate God, that's a good phrase, be rewarded with deepening knowledge of the Almighty? It can never be. God himself has ensured that it cannot be. See, our wisdom, our thinking is caved in on us. When we unplugged from God and plugged into the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we became these self-serving, self-centered creatures that define everything out of our perspective now. And then if you were to tell that creature, think your way to God, He would find himself. Would he not? Or some version of himself. Or some standard that he can meet. Or some goal that he can attain. He has turned inward on himself. If he has turned loose to figure out how to get back to God, he will never find his way back. Here's a definition for you for, I don't have this in your outline, for domesticating of God. Domesticating God is what happens when we turn the creation upside down. Rather than creation existing for God, because of God, and our existence answering to that, we make creation to exist for us and about us, and we make God to answer to that. This is the condition of humanity. This is the condition that we are in. So God comes along and he gets introduced here as the destroyer and thwarter. And in Romans chapter 8, he gets introduced as the inflictor of futility. Have you ever read some of this stuff? They poke around in this. This is the gospel. Romans chapter 8 verse 18. And this kind of comes up when the wheels are coming off of life. Paul's trying to explain, hey, the wheels are coming off. I'm busting out my why question because this is what I would call suffering, not fun. And he says, for I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worthy of comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. 
For the creation was, listen, subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. I like these last two words. In hope. I like that. But do you like what came before it? Can I introduce you to God? The destroyer, thwarter, and inflictor of futility. I'm going to ask you that everybody should be able to raise their hand on this. And if you can't, again, a little more time here. Do you know what futility tastes like? Personally. Because this Bible actually explains, and if you're a hyper-Christian who is more spiritual than the Bible, you might be tempted to say, I don't. Uh, No, that's not true. You do. Because God seasoned everything with a dash of futility. When he cooked up the creation that you and I live in, he sprinkled in futility. So every bite you take everywhere, it leaves that funny little aftertaste. That you kind of go, you know, it was good, but I don't know, it tastes kind of funny. It leaves a funny little taste. Everything in your life leaves that funny little taste of futility in it. If you stare around at your life, you will recognize that. Just the cycles and seasons and the aging patterns of life and the things that come and the things that go. The things that meant so much to us that aren't even here anymore. The people that meant so much to us that aren't even here with us anymore. And you are on your way to being one of those people who's not there for them and whoever is left. I mean, I just had one of those moments where you know, your phone pulls up these random pictures out of your collection of pictures. Does your phone do this to you? Because mine has never done it to me before until the other day. And poof, came up a picture of all of my children, except for Drew, who wasn't even born yet. We were all away in a mountain snowy scene and all my kids were little. And I'm fighting back tears. Because those days are gone. And they're never coming back. And the idea, because this is a reality, you know, my kids are all getting older. Back then, they were all right under my feet, in good ways and bad ways. <laughs> no, my, they were more under my wife's feet than my feet. But, and as life progresses, did you notice this? I don't know who the heck wrote this into the script, but they just keep moving farther and farther away from me. And I don't like that. At all. And there is nothing I can do about it. And so, you know, futility, right? I mean, people in our life, I've told you this before, my wife and I passed through a season where everybody older than us in our family, in our lives, died. Just about everybody. In a matter of about five years, we lost almost all the significant family members that were near and dear to us. And now as I age, I begin to realize... I'm going to be one of those people to my children. And one day life will just have this bitter taste for them that so mom and dad are just gone, huh? That's over? Yeah. And that's exactly how I feel. So my family's just gone. We did all these years of life together, all these memories and gone. That's it. What made it taste so futile? God did. 
Does that make God mean to you? Make God an ogre to you? Because he tags that phrase with in hope. We taste futility so that we may have hope. The worst thing in the world you and I could ever settle for is life right here on earth at this distance from God. That's the worst thing you and I could ever settle for. And the means of God releasing us from that is to let us take one bite after another of life. And every time we do, it's like, that was good. But it tasted like futility as well. None of us get to escape that. God has built it into his creation. And this is how God is going to be introduced to us. Right? This section in 1 Corinthians is, is rich with this God who is a, he's a frustrator. Right? A couple more places there. Verse 20. He's going to make the wisdom of the world foolish. Right? So you've got these wise ideas that everybody's like, oh, we've cooked up this awesome idea. Get ready, come together. Let's have a party. Ah, conference. Oh, we've got a new product. Let's sell it to everybody. Woo! And God comes along and labels it foolish, foolish. You know, the thwarter, destroyer God comes in. Foolish. Your big noisy party. It's over something that's foolish. Okay. Verse 21, where God says, you know, I've, I've made it. I've made it to where you, you can't discover me. Keith, are you sure the Bible teaches that? Yeah, I'm sure. Romans chapter 8, a couple more passages here. Romans chapter 8, verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. What is the mind set on the flesh? It, it's what happened to Adam in the Garden of Eden. He lost spiritual life from God and he and the tree got along really, really well. That was the mind set on the flesh. He became self-centered. The Bible says that mind is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It's not able to. That's what that cannot means. And then a little bit later, we're going to get introduced to something. This is true in 1 Corinthians as well. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. So there is this hope in 1 Corinthians about what the Spirit of God can do that you and I cannot do. Nike commercial. We cannot dream that you can all you want you cannot Isaiah 44 Isaiah 44 sits where the prophet Isaiah is explaining idolatry to these people and it's almost comical what he says to them this is the tail end of a long explanation about how they would cut down trees And they would take a piece of the tree and go warm themselves by a fire. And then they would cook over that fire while all at the same time taking another piece of that tree and shaping it into an idol that they would invite the tree now to rule over them as as their God. So it's almost like Isaiah says, can I explain how stupid this looks? (laughs) Verse 18, he says, "They, they do not know, nor do they understand... For, and this is his explanation as to why, he, God, has 
smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot comprehend. Verse 19, no one recalls nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, I burned half of it in the fire. And it's also baked bread over its coals. I, I roast meat and I eat it. Then I make the rest of it into an abomination and I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside. Listen to this. And he cannot deliver himself nor say, is, is there not a lie in my right hand? This is the condition of man. He cannot deliver himself. Not only can he not deliver himself, he cannot discern that I just turned a tree into a god and made it something for me to worship. He cannot even discern that. You and I can build idols without ever being able to discern that we just turned that into an idol to rule our lives as though it were God. And the Bible says you can't even know that is going on in your heart. I know this is kind of challenging to grasp, a little bit weird sounding, right? But this is where Paul starts with his explanation for the word of the cross. This is his starting moment. For explaining the word of the cross to these Corinthians. Paul is making the point that God has made sure that man needs the word of the cross and its power. He's explained to them, this is the reality, you need this. I know you're impressed with yourselves and you think you might figure some things out because that's what Greeks do and Romans do and even you Jews do it. But can I just explain something to you? The way the universe operates, the way God has designed it, you will never figure this out. You will never fix What's broken in your existence? You don't have the ability to do that. The God who created everything made sure that's how it was wired. Now, I know this sounds weird. And part of us wants to go, that's ridiculous. There's no way. That's, so, that's confusing even. There's no way this is true. All right, so when you keep reading this verse, you, you get down to this point in chapter, verse 25, where kind of Paul throws this concept out here in front of us. Because I know right now some of us are wanting to challenge the idea that this could even be true. With our vast discernment and wisdom, we would like to challenge the way God designed the universe. Right? And so Paul just kind of highlights this. He says, you know, I don't know if you know this, but the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Ever contemplated that verse? It's basically saying that you and, you and I can't climb on the same scale with God. We can't, we can't occupy the same space on a ruler to measure us. Right? So if you took, you know, here's a scale of, you know, here's really stupid over here. Here's, you know, slow, average. A lot of us are here. Genius, unbelievably smart is over here. I mean, just way top of the scale. All right, if God could have a dumb moment... He's on another scale, way over there. That begins way over there. So our smartest moment, we don't even show up into God's dumbest moment if that were possible. Our moment of great strength, 
If God could be weak and he could be as weak and weak and weak at the bottom end of weak for God, it would still be infinitely above our greatest moment of strength. Right, Dennis, you guys know what the NFL combine is? I mean, I know what the NFL combine is. Now you're afraid. See, you're afraid to acknowledge that you know the NFL because you you know I'm going to mock you. Um, (laughs) Right, the NFL combine, these guys show up for this thing. And they're going to try out for the NFL, basically. They're going to make a name for themselves. They're going to run the 40-yard dash. They're going to do some bench press stuff. They're going to jump real high. And they're going to write all this stuff down. And they're going to say, you know, this guy is the fastest in the 40 amongst all these guys here. Here is the key problem with our understanding of what Paul's saying right here. The NFL combine is is a comparison between this man and another man. This is a comparison between the abilities and wisdom and strength of man and that of God's. So can you imagine God showing up for the NFL combine? <laughs> right? Let's line up for the 40. Let's take the fastest guy here who's in the 40. You know, he gets down and he's in his stance and the gun goes off. I mean, he, this guy is so fast. I mean, I mean under 4.0. I mean, those are you guys who know. Oh, he's unbelievable. No one's ever run this fast. But He has no concept for a God who is finished before the sound of the gun clears his head. He's got no concept for that, right? And it's same guy can bench press. I don't even know what's a good bench. What's a good bench press? 400 pounds. Is that good? I mean, I know I can do that, but I don't know if everybody can. Um, So, I mean, this guy, he can just, he he just pumps. He's incredible, right? And we look at this guy and go, oh my God, unbelievable. And then we pull God into the NFL combine and we've got, we've got no category for the God who takes his 400 pounds and the entire weight set in the building and the building and the planet and the universe and puts them in the palm of his hand and doesn't strain. No concept for that. This, this is the God who's being spoken of here when you and I want to be smart and say, that can't be how the universe is run. God could not have done it that way. That's not how this works. All right, what's God doing in this passage? Well, if you, if you exit chapter one, there is this comparison that's taking place, but it's not a comparison between uh, the Greek smart guys and the Roman smart guys and this smart guy versus that smart guy and Apollos versus... It's not a comparison there. What Paul does is he compares humanity with God. And when you walk away from that comparison, you, you don't exit 1 Corinthians chapter 1 with a really sense of really, really positive self-esteem. You don't walk away feeling impressed with yourself. You don't walk away with this, look at what I can do. Look how talented I am. You you don't exit chapter one being impressed with man. It won't take you there. Chapter one introduces us to man in relation to God. And when it does that, it exposes our limitations, our insufficiency, our great need. The uniqueness of this word of the cross now comes to life. This this chapter is designed for something. It is designed to frustrate. It is designed to bring you and I to a point of declaring bankruptcy. It is designed for humans to give up 
It is not what's in the polluted bloodstream of our culture that doesn't invite you ever to give up because you need God to be what only God can be in your life. Our culture just invites you to more of you. Try harder. You've got so much potential. And don't let anybody else say, you know, the real sin in this world is not that you have hijacked your life from the God of the universe and have used it to serve your own self-sufficient purposes. That's not the greatest sin. The greatest sin today is anybody daring to tell somebody else that they're not great. That's the worst thing you could possibly do. I, I don't find that. In this passage, where I'm introduced to this God who is a thwarter and a destroyer. Now, now, is this just because this, you know, this God is such a killjoy, sourpuss, sitting on some throne with a bad attitude? I mean, just chronic. Isn't that what he's doing? He's just, he's just waiting for you to dream something so he can step on it. He just loves killing bugs. He just sits in heaven, just waiting for you to really get your heart attached to something so he can go, no, next, no, to that too, no, no, and no before you even ask me. No, that's God, right? We might just know a little, but we know enough to know that's not God. That's not what he's like. You and I have no concept of love, joy. Apart from God, he created those things. He is the one who originates the stuff that we really, really love here. So what is he doing in this? He is intentionally bankrupting us. Or at least getting us to admit that we are bankrupt. Because God doesn't stand over us and say, you can, you can, you can. He stands over us and says, you can't. But I can. I will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. So hope is found in this passage in an incredibly wonderful way, even though it's felt like it's, wow, that's the thing, so negative. This whole passage feels so negative. So where's the hope in this? Eric, you can go ahead and come back up wherever you are. Where's the hope in this passage? It's it's all over the place. Let, 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 Let our intellects and our hearts be trained by the eyes of God as we stare into this passage. This is not a hopeless passage. This is an awesome passage. This is, this is the passage that the Apostle Paul says, hey, you know, the one thing I'm going to make sure and talk about is the word of the cross. That's the, that's the centerpiece of everything I'm going to talk about. Paul, what, would you just like some negative hate monger? You want to just constantly introduce people to a God who's a thwarter and a destroyer and an inflictor of futility? Um, if I can get them to transfer their boasting from themselves to God, yes. Yeah, that's exactly what I want to do. But that's, that's the rub, isn't it? I don't want to stop boasting in me. And I definitely don't want you to stop boasting in me. I want everybody to boast in me. Can we all have a boasting session just for a moment? I want to feel great about me because of something about me. And I want you to feel great about me because there's something about me that's better than you. And better than that guy. And better than everybody I hang around because I only hang around people that I'm better than. (laughs) I'm designing my universe here because I'm designing it for boasting. I want to boast in me. I want to notice something about me. I want to be impressed with me and I want you to be impressed with me too. 
And yet God is designing a system so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Even about you being saved. You understand you can't even boast in the fact that you're a Christian, not a lost knucklehead. You don't have any boast in that either. There's hope all throughout this verse. There's hope that there's this mysterious power in the cross that can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That's hope. There's hope that salvation is in the hands of God and not in my hands. This God who saves, who calls, who chooses, we'll look at further in this verse. That's that's great hope because I can't do calculus and physics real well. I don't think I can think my way to salvation and cooperate with the God of the universe's plan, especially when I'm caved in on me and that plan doesn't feature enough of me so I will never be attracted to it. That would be hopeless. That would be quite hopeless. We'll look at this next week, I think. But in verse 30, we get all, we get all this treasure into our lives. It says, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. Right? That, that has come to us because it was granted to us, not because it was gained by us. What if sanctification and righteousness and redemption and wisdom, you had to gain it? You might feel good about the chase until you ran for a little while and realize, I'm never going to make it. I will never achieve this. Well, what hope is there for God to say, how about if you, how about if you give up? You set all your hope in me. That I will do these things that you cannot do for yourself. And that's how I want us to finish today. I want to ask you about your giving up. Are you here, are you here this morning and you've, you've given up? In, in the sense that this Bible is promoting. You've given up. And I had asked the question in the beginning, what, what category do you find yourself in? Perishing? Saved? If you have not given up, you are perishing. Here's what I mean by giving up, and I want to give you an opportunity to respond to this, so listen carefully. Ever since the Garden of Eden, the story of human beings' lives has been personal ownership, if you will. You come into this world, your life deed, the corporation of Keith Collins, is owned by Keith Collins. I own this thing. And I live my life trying to build my company, trying to do my thing, trying to create my own label, advance it, make it wealthy, make it bigger, make it, make it awesome. 
And at some point, I've come to the realization that I'm running this business into the ground. That's really hard to come to that conclusion if profits are up, everything's going well. So the Bible will tell you you're perishing. You're one stock market crash away from nothing. The Bible will tell you that. But you don't feel that right now. So I don't even know if I can speak to you right now. You're here and the stock market's up for you. But if you've lived life long enough and you know, I am, I'm, I'm, I'm running my life into the ground. The wheels are coming off. There's a lot that's broken in my life. And you get approached by somebody who says, I tell you what, let me make this deal with you. Let me buy you out. What do you mean? Oh, I, I want to own your company. I'm going to make you this deal and put it in writing right now. I'll take everything about your life, all the debt, all the problems, all the lawsuits, everything. I'll take it. But you're no longer the owner. So you will never have another day where you get to call the shots. You get to make the decisions for this company. You're you're done. You want that? If you got an ounce of confidence in yourself that you can pull yourself out of this mess, you can fix this. You will keep your own ownership. You will tell the Son of God, no thanks. Hey, by the way, I don't mind you coming to visit. And I wouldn't mind some advice from time to time, but I'd like to stay the owner. See, what the Son of God comes and does is he, is he says, are you ready to declare bankruptcy? Are you convinced that you cannot, cannot, you don't have the ability to fix your own life and to make it something? And I'm willing to buy you out and do exactly that. All right, so at some point in your life, I think this is a helpful illustration. Do you ever remember sitting down at the table with Jesus Christ with the deed of your life sitting in front of you and you spun that thing around and you handed it over to him and you signed your life away to him and he signed. And at that moment, the ownership of your life became his and not yours anymore. Listen, if you are here today And that doesn't make any sense to you. You don't know that you've ever done anything like that. You are probably in the category of perishing. You can be nice. Fresh coat of paint on your buildings for your company. But here this morning, here's the deal. I can't offer you a deal. But Jesus can offer you a deal. Jesus Christ today offers you the deal to buy you out. He will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. He will pay the debts that you cannot pay. And he will take on the ownership of your life from this day forward. He'll clean up the mess. He'll move it forward. He'll make you profitable. He'll give you a future. You have to sign it over to him and entrust your life to him. You want to do that? You want to do that this morning? You want to close this deal with Jesus? 
this morning. This is what this verse was intending to get us to do. Stop trusting ourselves. Stop boasting in our abilities. There are some things that only God can do for us and in us. If you want that, let's just bow our heads for a moment. Bow your heads where you are. If you want that, what I just described, you take your life, all that it is, all your hopes, all your dreams, every relationship, everything you own, everything that's represented by that deed of your life. This morning, September the 23rd will be what the official paperwork will say. Sign in the space that says seller, former owner, sign right there and pass that deed to Jesus and let him now sign and take over ownership of your life. In your heart, you can do that right here. This is a heavenly transaction that happens right in moments like this. That from this moment forward, your life has a new owner. And what hope you have for a future. That this God, the ultimate entrepreneur, just bought you out. The one who designed life and created life and gives it its meaning and its categories and its purpose. He is now the owner of your life. Oh, what do you think about next week now? And next month? And five years from now? How about 5,000 years from now? How do you feel about that with your new owner? I'm going to pray for every person here this morning then. Lord, this morning they are aware that whether they've ever done that in their life before, this morning, this moment is the intention of their heart. The faith that's in them is in you, Lord, to be the owner, the master, the Lord, the God over every day from this one forward. Or would you take the ownership of our lives and would you do incredible things with our lives that we could never have imagined and that we could not do for ourselves? You, Lord, are about to teach us how those things do get done in and through us, by you and for your glory. Let's stand up together. You have a really good song? Eric has a really good song to help us just enjoy what God has just done. And, and I'm let us close with that one song. If this morning you are here and, and, and in your heart you feel, I, I just transacted that. I, I truly, in my heart, I signed my life over this morning to Christ. Would, would you take a moment and, and come find me, Pastor Peter? Come, come let us know that you did that just so that we can pray for you and know how to pray for you in the future. So do that as we close with this last song. Who has felt
seated on His throne. Come, let us adore Him. Behold our King. Nothing can compare. Come, let us adore showing us our place in light of your place. Lord, may we live that way this week, Lord, we pray. In your name, amen. Amen. You guys have a great week.